choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Here are a couple of questions for you. Are you unable to walk past a bookshop without stepping inside for a quick browse? Do you sometimes smell your books? Do you buy books even though you already have a pile of unread books? Do you chat about books with friends? Or are you always on the lookout for your next favorite read? If you answered yes to one or more of those questions, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. I'm your host Paige Nick, and for the next hour we'll be talking about all kinds of books. We have reviews, interviews, and even a review of a cookbook. First up, Beverly Rose Muller reviews the latest novel by Kazuo Ishiguro, Clara and the Sun. Ishiguro is a world-famous author who was knighted in 2018. A new book from him is always a season to be celebrated. Clara and the Sun is one of Nobel Prize winner Kazuo Ishiguro's most imaginative and disturbing works. A beautiful book with a beautiful cover. It is really quite easy to read at a superficial level. His story is set in a not too distant future, in which having robots in our homes, those that are responsive, emotionally fine-tuned models of artificial intelligence, seems to be the norm. But this norm is not normal. It is now a fearful world in which humans are more vulnerable to an unmentioned threat, in which there are little razor-like teeth waiting for your guard to drop, not dissimilar to our present pandemic. Clara is an artificial friend, designed as an aware, benevolent human support, chiefly for those vulnerable children who have been genetically altered to become part of the elite. Otherwise, no matter how talented, they will take their places amongst those destined to become the equivalent of feudal grunts. But this genetic altering contains grave risks. Some children whose aspirant parents have opted for this path have become ill, like Josie, whose older sister has in fact died of the procedure. Those whose parents refuse to take the risk. Like Josie's boyfriend, the talented Rick, must confront a less aspirational life, no matter how exceptional his skills. It is a whole new level of Big Brother, controlling not only what you may not do, but also what you may. It is an iron form of inclusion versus exclusion. Much of the book is to do with the mysterious qualities of love. Does the human heart differ from one to another? What will parents do for love? And what, for that matter, about Clara herself? Does she have a programmed intelligence which enables her to feel the warm emotions that humans do? For she is essentially a servant of human foibles, and what is perhaps missing from her motherboard, therefore, is the quality of ruthlessness. So Kazuo, who was knighted in 2018, never reveals what Clara looks like. The sun is her deity, that ancient source of energy, to which she ascribes true power, just as did the ancient Egyptians. And it is to the sun that she makes her sacrificial promise, in order to save Josie from her sinking illness. We see the world only through Clara's eyes, and what a self-serving human world it is, containing and exploiting that most dangerous of emotions, love. Given that Sukazawa moved from Japan to Britain at the age of five, his observation of its culture has remained both a source of fascination and rich material for him. Both class and caste remain pertinent to his work. His best known, the remains of the day, describing to perfection the devotion of servants to an aristocrat, yet never able to rise above their stations, to themselves aspire to the full lives of their lords and masters. This is by no means a far cry from the world of Clara. Above all, Ishiguro's books are about the measure of restraint. A quality he believes both the British and Japanese have in common. This limits Clara to what she may do out of love, and what she may not expect, because of her caste. She remains among the untouchables, despite her humans' affection for her, and her far greater one for them. It is possible to read a great deal into this uncomfortable metaphor. Clara and the Sun is a marvelous, quiet. Nuanced questioning of what even the best of us will do to protect those we love and indeed ourselves. Next up, some non-fiction with Leanne Voicy, a book called "Give Us More Guns" by Mark Shaw.
This book offers shocking insight into a case that certainly needs more awareness, the sale of thousands of police-issue guns to criminals and gangsters. Give Us More Guns by Mark Shaw is a doozy of a book. Not nice or fun or pacifying, this impeccably researched and courageous non-fiction work lays bare one of the biggest travesties in post-apartheid South Africa. That most of us know either nothing or very little about these events speaks to our basic human need for avoidance of that which most needs our attention. Far rather fixate on Harry and Meghan's drama and other countries' dodgy politics than face and fix our own backyards. Shaw spent three years researching, compiling and writing the sorry true tale of greed and violence. He interviewed politicians, gangsters, police personnel from constables to commissioners, business owners, killers, goodies, baddies and numerous who straddle the fence. The book spans many, many years and is about an ongoing crisis. Give Us More Guns in a Nutshell is about an Afrikaans colonel in the South African police service called Christian Prinsloer, who sold thousands of police-issue guns to criminals and gangsters from roughly 2006 onwards until his arrest and subsequent slap on the wrist in 2015. His actions almost single-handedly fueled the increased taxi violence in KwaZulu-Natal and, closer to home, the out-of-control turf and crime war on the Cape Flats. Just a few days ago, I saw an article bemoaning the fact that Prince Lua was released on parole after serving just three years and ten months of an 18-year sentence. So this story is current and burns very hot. Shaw digs deep and gives a total picture which doesn't shy away from any aspects of South Africa's past and present. He even, bless him, offers some solutions for our future. Taking an incredibly complex and uncomfortable subject and telling it like it is, he stays objective and unemotional, allowing the chips to fall as they may, so that the reader isn't manipulated. There are graphs and lists and black and white photographs, there are chapter notes and explanations for the layperson and gangster newbie. It's unpalatable stuff, but good for us, like cod liver oil. Give Us More Guns by Mark Shaw is published by Jonathan Bull Publishers and is available as an e-book. I think these books, while not always easy to read, are so important in South Africa, where it's all too easy to brush corruption under the carpet. The fact that it took Mark Shaw three years to write is indicative of the kind of important work our authors and journalists are doing and why it's so necessary to support them. I think we need some music before we head into our next reading journey. A clouded moon creeps across a clouded sky Winds of January sigh and moan And yet it's June I can see a sky of blue Dear, the miracle is due To you Just you it's June in January Because I'm in love It always is spring in my heart With you in my arms The snow is just white blossoms That fall from above and here is the reason, my dear, your magical charms The night is cold And the trees are bare But I can feel the scent of roses in the air It's June in January Because I'm in love But only because I'm in love with you
but only because I'm in love with you. That was June in January by Bing Crosby. And you know, all the music for the show is compiled by Rick Everett. So big shout out. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. We welcome Melvin Minar, interviewing Patricia Kramer about a marvelous coffee table book called Hidden Carew. It's the latest in Strake's Hidden series, revealing the beauty and relevance of lesser-known spaces, places, and landscapes. This book contains mind-blowing photography by Elaine Proust, one of South Africa's leading photographers, partnered with very engaging stories uncovered and told by expert Patricia Kramer. How would you sum up those marvellous discoveries you made? There are marvellous discoveries that we made, uh, made through contacts, personal friends and colleagues and so on. But there are also the buildings which are not hidden from sight. For example, the main street of Beaufort West. But what is hidden is the story, the story behind the building. The cypress tree which stands right in front of the Beaufort West Museum, passed every day by thousands of people, is actually a provincial uh, monument. It is the last tree in a long row of trees which led down to the cemetery. So there are hidden buildings which people don't normally get to see, and then there are buildings which are obvious, but they don't know the story behind them. So that's the hidden, coming at it from both sort of angles. It's wonderful. You are known for extensive exploration of far-flung places deep in the country. How long and extensive was this book's journey and its itinerary? This book, what happened was Alarm started, I think over two years ago now, because we lost a year last year, photographing. He had the idea and he started by photographing the towns. And then we knew each other socially. He asked me to come on board because he knew that I'd been doing corbel buildings in the Karoo, so I'd built up quite an extensive network of contact. He asked me to come on board, for, but to guide him in places which were more off the beaten track, which he didn't know about or he didn't know how to get there. So that was my first role, to lead him to places, to find places, to get permission for him to visit places which were off the beaten track, not particularly in the towns. So that was where our collaboration started. I mean, I mapped out trips for him to take, got permissions and all this sort of thing. And I contacted colleagues, archaeologists who I knew, I met at a conference, told me about a place they'd excavated at. And yeah, and then he set off on two or three gigantic field trips with all my notes and directions and introductions to photograph um, the out-of-the-way places which he wouldn't have discovered on his own. Well, of course, you came from the background of the previous book, The <clears throat> Corbelt Houses, that you did as well. Yes. Well, in fact, because my husband, John Kramer, has been painting um, small town shops, dorp shops, Alchemina Handelas, since the 70s, we've, in fact, been traveling through the Karoo looking for these since the 70s. But in 2006, I was introduced to Corbel Buildings, and that was when my great interest in Corbel Buildings started in a rather isolated part of the Karoo around Carnarvon, Loxton, Fraserburg. And so for 10 years, we've been researching those. So it all kind of came together, uh, many years of traveling and then 10 years of intensive research in the Karoo, meeting people, making contacts and that sort of thing. I think it's very valuable uh, work that you've done. Conservation is a powerful subtext of this book. Of course, the great pictures, but also the passionate and informative text that you supplied. Do you think these gems will survive? Yes, I do, because people are much more aware now. What I discovered is that on farms, in this day and age, farmers are looking for alternative or extra sources of income. And so on many farms where there were interesting buildings, which perhaps like Let's Kral, north of Kralfrenet, way north of Kralfrenet, which had fallen into a state of disrepair, it was Andre Pretorius's house. That is now being renovated and you can go there as a guest house. It's been beautifully and authentically renovated. So that is what's happening on farms. People are renovating and turning many of their interesting buildings, and there are lots of interesting buildings, into guest houses. So they're being saved in that way. 
okay, they've got modern kitchen and a modern bathroom, but they are not falling to pieces anymore or, or, or just collapsing. Even in many towns do have heritage association. Now Prince Albert has a very strong heritage association. And I think people are, the tourism has now taken a knock in the last year, but you know, people are aware that tourists looking at the old authentic architecture. And even the Corbel buildings, uh, which never really were knocked down unless they became dangerous, even they are now just being sort of like left alone, not being knocked down or to use the stone or anything like that. So they are being now preserved. People are much more aware of their heritage. Well, I think this book could certainly like a very good uh, publicity for heritage as well as yes. tourism. So thank you very much. We spoke about Hidden Karoo with Patricia Kramer. We're joined by Vanessa Levenstein reviewing Bloody Sunday by Mignon Brer. I had never heard about Bloody Sunday before this review about a rather bloody book. There is a special skill set required to blend hard journalism and heartfelt storytelling. It also takes someone with a strong stomach and stamina to research grotesque acts of violence. Bloody Sunday, The Nun, The Defiance Campaign and South Africa's Secret Massacre is written by Minion Breyer. A former journalist and researcher, she spent seven years uncovering what was one of the most brutal massacres of the apartheid era. Yet unlike Sharpville, few knew about it. Her investigations led her to the National Archives in Pretoria, where a simple cardboard box held the answers to what happened on a seemingly ordinary day in 1952, in Duncan Village in East London, a day that the author has aptly named Bloody Sunday. Over 200 people were killed, yet, and here is where the story gets murky, the bodies were literally and figuratively buried, hushed up on both sides of the political divide, save for one person, an Irish nun. Depending on one's religious beliefs, one could argue it was divine providence that guided the author's hand. In 2013, 20 years after her mother's death, Minion opened her mother's Bible and found two newspaper cuttings. The first showed a smiling young woman with round cheeks and a white wimple. The caption read, Dr. Quinlan, known as Sister Aidan, who was killed during the rioting in the East Bank location on Sunday. The second photo was of a burnt-out classroom. It was then the author remembered the story that her mother had told her about the nun that burned to death. What her mother had admitted was what happened afterwards. Elsie was born in 1914 in a rural country village in Ireland, the youngest of five children. She was a confident and clever child, and while there were not too many options open to women at that time, Elsie could have chosen so many paths that were considerably easier. Yet she decided to become a nun in a Dominican congregation in South Africa. What's more, in a habit and wimple, she studied for a medical degree and graduated from Bits in 1945. If there was a thread that joined the life of Ilse in Ireland to her new role as Sister Aidan in South Africa, it was a person, Father John Power. Now, in the hands of a less responsible author, this relationship could have been airbrushed to be Sister Aidan's great love. However, this is gently suggested, yet never exploited for the sake of lightening the heavy narrative. Heavy it is, not least because of the dramatic events of the day, but also because of the apartheid landscape. The author funnels deep into the complexities of our brutal past and contextualizes the personal against the political. While two African men went to the gallows for the murder of Sister Aidan, no one, she writes, was tried or convicted for the killings of black people on Bloody Sunday. Statues must fall, monuments are destroyed, which leaves us with the power of the narrative. It is in the telling of these stories, the reclaiming of this tragic day as part of our collective history, that we remember the nameless and the faceless. We remember June 16th through the lens of the photographer Sam Nzima, who captured the iconic image of Hector Peterson. We will remember Bloody Sunday through the lens of a formidable writer and her portrait of a brave Irish nun. You know, I'm always interested in where books start. So the story of the newspaper clippings in the author's Bible really fascinates me. I get that moon with the silvery light June on a summer night Spoon. Wish you'd hold me tight Feeling. Darling, every 
time that I'm with you I get that sky Like a turtle dove Not a cloud above Cause I'm so in love Feeling Funny what a little kiss can do Why I've heard all of these rhymes Many years ago Thousands of times On the radio In every kind of a song But they were wrong They sounded corny and trite Couldn't figure out It didn't seem right What it's all about But ever since you came along I get that moon With a silvery light June On a summer night Boom Wish you'd hold me quite Feeling Darling every time that I'm with you sung by Pat and Shirley Boone was that last tune in our book show this June. And I'm your rhyming host, Paige Nick. Warning, if you weren't hungry before, you will be after this next review. We've invited well-known South African author and food writer Philippa Sheffitz to tell us about Curried by Karima Isaacs, which is published by Penguin Random House. It's full of curry recipes that are going to keep us warm this winter. Curried by Karima Isaacs, Penguin Random House. Karima's first cookbook, my Kate Millay Kitchen was a loving tribute to her late father. Her grandmother had painstakingly taught her how to cook all the traditional Kate Millay dishes, but it was her father who shared a passion for food and cooking, as well as their Kate Millay heritage. Our two books on, a Gourmand Culinary Award-nominated Spice Odyssey, Sandwich in Between, Karima has published Courage. If I'm to lose myself in the comfort of food, let it be in the warmth of a curry. Karima lives in Dubai with her two sons and husband, Toha and Samudin, who took the must-cook photograph. Here she has enjoyed so many food experiences that have inspired this new book. This book Karima dedicates to Lani Jacob Aragon, whose unbelievable assistance has given Karima the time to go to culinary school to write and to travel. Lani has mastered Cape Malay cuisine and shared her signature recipes from the Philippines. She's a tester for all the recipes and is revered as a food critic. In this book, Karima includes curries from all over the world, nor has she neglected to include beloved Cape Malay classics. And there are new recipes, successfully spiced in deliciously different ways. Karima loves to use what is fresh and seasonal, but she's also practical, acknowledging how often we need quick solutions, turning to ready-made sauces and paste. Karima's favorites are included in a chapter titled Curry Cupboard Caboodle. The recipes are organized into seasons. Seafood and fish curries for summer, a Caribbean crab curry, Cape Malay crayfish curry, grilled madras masala fish, in autumn, it's curry that mimic the russet colors of autumn leaves. Legumes and pulses take center stage. There's a recipe for Indian dal tadka, a Nepal curried stew with black-eyed peas. Mom's Cape Malay lentil curry. Winter is for comfort food. 
Sunday curried roast chicken, a Japanese chicken katsu curry, Malaysian Portuguese devil's curry, Pakistani lamb kofta curry, spring is light and bright, Thai green tofu curry, curried vegetable stir fry, Indian paneer and pea curry. There's a section on breads, rice and condiments. Curries are made for dunking, dipping, scooping and drenching, torn cake malay flaky roti or Caribbean roti or Indian naan bread or ladled over warm and fluffy aromatic spiced as mati rice. Condiments are central to curries. Spicy sambos, aromatic achars, a mint and coriander chutney, and a final one are desserts and drinks. Traditionally, desserts do not indicate Malay meal, rather slices of oranges, twigs of melon, bowls of lychees. Sweet treats are indulged in between meals. Kerkarima has included dessert that would complement a spicy main course. Pistachia coffee, carrot halva, others use exotic fresh fruits. To drink, always tea to end the meal, masala chai. Enjoy the book. Slowly savor the recipes, the photographs, all the treasured memories. Now feels like a good time for more fiction. Beryl Eichenberger reviews The Henna Artist by Alka Joshi. This debut novel takes us back to Jaipur of 1955 and a woman whose independence and talent brings her within the entitled castes but separates her from her ultimate goal. The Henna Artist by Alka Joshi is published by Mira. I've always been fascinated by the henna rituals so traditional in certain Indian cultures. The intricate designs are a story within themselves, telling of the artist and of the recipient. Al-Kajashi's debut novel, The Henna Artist, takes us into those stories, intricately painting a story that is both nuanced and revealing. It is India 1955, just after partition, a dusty sunny morning in the pink city of Jaipur. The city is awakening. The dusty streets are filling with people, walking, riding on rickshaws, building roadside fires, erecting stalls, all with a singular purpose, to provide. It is one woman's goal that forms the core of this novel, how a determined young woman from a very poor background struggles for a better life using her education and a unique talent to rise above her expected future. The story had me spellbound from the first page evocative imagery conjures up the vibrancy of a city finding its place. Luscious, rich characters and lyrical prose draw the reader into an intricate saga that spins out into a rich and powerful story of one woman's struggle for independence. To me, it was almost a parallel for the clash of India's patriarchal culture and the pivot between tradition and modernism. Quote, independence changed everything. Independence changed nothing. Eight years after the British left, we now had free government schools, running water and paved roads. But Jaipur still felt the same to me as it had 10 years ago, the first time I stepped foot on its dusty soil, unquote. Lakshmi Shastri is a 30-year-old woman with a remarkable talent. She is a henna artist of note with a clientele that includes the most rich and favored Indian families in the city. Her intricate and innovative designs are known to bring wayward husbands back into the fold. Her skills encompass the spiritual symbols that embody the culture. But she is also a healer whose knowledge of plant properties extend way beyond the simple cure. Husbands seek her help when their mistresses fall prey to unwanted ills. Wives seek help for barrenness and more. She is their confidant, privy to the secrets of the rich, and able to provide solutions. And with matchmaking another of her skills, she is poised to improve her life even more. Ambitious, perceptive, private, and empathetic, her singular purpose is to own her own heart and to live a life of her own choosing. She is a cautious woman who has sacrificed much. By leaving her abusive arranged marriage in her village some 15 years before, she lost her parents to the shame she caused them. Yet her reputation is intact, and she distances herself from advances. Her benefactor, wealthy architect, Samir Singh, respects her skills, and in exchange, effects introductions to pursue her dream. That all this is about to change. When her husband, Harry, suddenly appears with her sister, 13-year-old Radha, 
born after she left, Lakshmi's ordered world becomes complicated. Taking on her familial responsibility, Lakshmi soon realizes that Radha's high-spirited yet naive personality will challenge her existence with unimagined consequences. As they say, the best laid plans. Some truly memorable characters represent the sweep of the artist's brush as they link all the parts together. Malik, Lakshmi's young servant, old and wise beyond his years. Kanta Agawal, the best friend who inadvertently diverts Lakshmi's journey. Dr. J. Kumar, to whom healing can take many forms. These remain etched in one's mind, but there are so many more, each with their unique facets, and for this, Joshi has provided a helpful cast of characters as reference. She has written a beautiful story, which snakes through India's caste system, the entitlement of the rich, the lavish cultural heritage, the wanton desires of powerful men, to the determination of educated but poor women. Additionally, she shows the turmoil that independence and democracy brings as the people struggle towards a free future. Josh's research gives us a slice of the complications of a country shackled by tradition, yet looking to plan a future. For Lakshmi, there is a place of peace and fulfillment, but as we join her on her journey, the potholes are sometimes overwhelming. A novel that leaves you with a profound satisfaction. Oh, they say when you marry in June, you're a bride all your life. And the bridegroom who marries in June gets a sweetheart for a wife. Winter weddings can be gay like a Christmas holiday. But the June bride hears the song of a spring that lasts all summer long. By the light of the silvery moon, home you ride side by side with the echo of Mendelssohn's tune in your hearts as you ride. For they say when you marry in June, you will always be a bride. The day a maiden marries is a day she carries through the the church is full of flowers, bridal showers are passé. The groom's waiting at the altar, here comes the bride. They're each promising to love and obey. Best man is celebrating, every bridesmaid waiting just to see which one of them will catch the wedding bouquet. That was June Brides, sung by Virginia Gibson, and Brides from the film Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. You're listening to hopefully one of your favorite shows on fine music radio, Book Choice, brought to you by Exclusive Books. And I'm your host, Paige Nick. Now, I have something creepy coming up. Special guest Professor Michael Samways reviews a major new book on insects called Pollinators, Predators, and Parasites, The Ecological Roles of Insects in South Africa, by Clark Skoltz, Jenny Skoltz, and Henny de Klerk. Bring on the creepy crawlies. All the little animals are the tapestry of life around us, from crabs to crayfish, worms to wasps. All these small creatures are busy doing something ecologically important somewhere at any one time. Pollinating insects sustain this astonishing variety of flowers that we have here across southern Africa. In turn, parasitic wasps, 
Predatory beetles and spiders control plant feeding insects, preventing too much plant damage. Many insects, such as the tiny little springtails that we see in leaf litter, they, they populate this soil in their millions per square meter or so. They shred leaf litter, make it ready for further breakdown by bacteria and fungi. Dung beetles roll away or bury nice, nutrient-rich dung. Then in turn, grasshoppers spread their soft, friable feces, also rich in sustaining substances, to the benefit of plant roots. All these amazingly complex interactions keep the land green and resilient, as they have done for millions of years. South Africa is a very special place. It has many types of ecosystems grouped into larger areas known as biomes. These range from desert and dune to famboss and forest. Dry areas, semi-dry areas, as well as extensive wetlands, whether on the coast of KwaZulu-Natal or the Okavango swamps, they all have their own set of tiny workers maintaining ecosystems in a dynamic natural state. The book by Jenny Skoltz and Henny de Klerk, which is called Pollinators, Predators and Parasites, is a truly wonderful book. It is a visual feast packed with many fascinating stories about the private lives of the little players in this stunning part of the world. Rare is it that there is a book that can be read straight through, and yet afterwards be revisited to enjoy some of the nuggets of the ecological fascination given there. While the book is about the ecological roles of insects in southern Africa, it also ranges into the intriguing behavior of the relatives of the insects, such as spiders, millipedes, and centipedes. Besides there being included much information about the insects that we like, such as the beautiful butterflies and dragonflies, there are also many insights into the ones we don't like, from mosquitoes to lice and fleas. Yet all these insects, both the lovely ones and the ugly ones, have roles to play. And the tales about them given here in this book have a basis in sound scientific exploration and research arising out of decades of combined authoritative experience on the part of the three authors. The book begins with an overview of insects and their ecological roles, along with descriptions of morphology, anatomy, and how those relate to the various ecological roles that they play. Then the book takes us on a journey through the main Southern African biomes, starting with the Thamboss, through to the succulent Karoo, desert, and Namakaroo, and then on to grassland and savanna, followed by chapters on the Indian Ocean tropical belt, Albany thicket in the Eastern Cape, and the forest biomes. The book goes on to explore particular environments, including freshwater habitats, caves, the coastal zone, and not forgetting the urban environment. The book ends with an excellent summary of the Southern African insect groups. The book is lavishly illustrated with 1,600 color photographs and explores all sorts of amazing stories of insect behavior and ecology. The book clearly makes real life as interesting and as spectacular, in fact, even arguably more so than the imagined one. This book really is for everyone, from keen naturalist to scholar, student, and professional biologist, whatever their specialization. You will want to keep this book close by so that you can pick it up and at any time feast on it so as to dip into lovely little insect stories as a special treat. Thank you, Prof. And now, Anthony Friedgen gives us some insight into 1986 by William Darcy. 1986 was 34 years ago. Depending on your age now, you either remember it well or vaguely, or not at all if you were too young. For some, it was the good old days. For many more, not so. 1986 was a turbulent period in our history, and 1986 is a superbly written book from William Darcy, a welcome reminder of where South Africa was and where we are today. 
what we've been through and survived. A bit battered and bruised, certainly, but we have survived. William Dicey has broken the year down into twelve parts, a monthly account of major events. It was the year of Halley's Comet, Boerter's Rubicon speech, and the severe consequences for the RAND and South Africa's ability to borrow money internationally, together with Defence Force cross-border raids, international isolation increased. Neil Barnard, head of National Intelligence Service, said that by 1986, even P.W. Boerter had accepted, perhaps with reluctance, that a negotiated settlement was the best option to solve our political predicament. Top business people and politicians started making trips to Lusaka to meet with the ANC. Dialogue was beginning. The country went from a partial state of emergency in March to a full state of emergency in June. 1986 was the tenth anniversary of the Soweto uprising. There was widespread belief that the revolution would start that day. Overnight, thousands of people were detained. Restrictions on the press were harsher than they'd ever been before. Louis Nell, Deputy Minister of Information, announced, This is not press censorship, but there is a limit to what may be published. 1986's version of George Orwell's 1984, Newspeak. Apartheid became ethnic pluralism. Forced removals, surplus people were endorsed out of urban areas. Any opponent of the government was either Marxist or communist. When the Defence Force established a death squad in April, it was named the Civil Cooperation Bureau. In May, one and a half million workers stayed at home, demanding that the government declare May the 1st be made a public holiday. The far right celebrated the 25th anniversary of Republic Day at the Furtracker Monument outside Pretoria. The organizers expected a crowd of 100,000. Only 10,000 showed up. A spokesman for the Conservative Party blamed the poor turnout at the event on the day's sporting events. We can be a very strange bunch sometimes. Winnie Mandela made her infamous, with these matches and petrol, we will liberate our country. This was deeply embarrassing to the liberation movement. Tragically, and to our eternal shame, necklacing became part of the South African lexicon. Every month seemed to bring a new boycott, embargo, excommunication, or expulsion, whether economic, military, sporting, cultural, religious, or diplomatic. In October, the Dutch Reformed Church opened its membership to all races. Economist Professor Sampita Blanche wrote that 1986 was the real turning point in South Africa's democratic transformation. In Rian Milan's memoir, My Traitor's Heart, he identified 1986 as a watershed year in South African politics drawing on thousands of sources and combining them seamlessly in a remarkably easy-to-read book, William Darcy has captured the period superbly. But I must admit, this is not a comfortable read if one is politically aware. Perhaps we need to recall where we were thirty-four years ago. Perhaps we need reminding, so that we should never lose touch with our past. It's alarming how abnormal can become the new normal. If serious reading is what you're after, I highly recommend 1986 by William Darcy, published by Penguin Random House South Africa, priced at 286 rand. Well worth the price. How about another interview? Philip Todros took time out to speak with photojournalist James Otway, one of two photojournalists who produced Brother, a photographic account of xenophobic attacks in South Africa, published by Jakarta. This book takes its reader on a journey of discovery that's both unsettling and informative. Brother, the photographers are Otway and Skye, and I've got to emphasize that brother is spelled B-R in parenthesis and then other. And I think that's what the book is really focusing on, is the other and the way we treat the other. 
In fact, it's quite a remarkable book in its uh, dedication, which says this book is dedicated to all those who have been affected by violence, intolerance and hatred. It's got a very impressive forward by Justice Edwin Cameron, contributions by people including the likes of Justice Mishlala, Professor Kilim Bemba, and the most important thing to me, and that's why I'm speaking to you, James, James Otway, is as the photojournalists. So I think that's a very, very tricky situation you're in, that relationship between trauma and aesthetic. And as you say, the duty of a photojournalist is to bear witness, to show the world what is happening and to hope that society will act. Can you perhaps expand a little bit on that and the duty and the responsibilities you feel, which I think are very, very trying and, as I say, that relationship between trauma and aesthetic must be a very difficult one to try and traverse. Yes, yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, so the, the whole thing about being a photojournalist is that we often sort of serve as the eyes of society. You know, we, we go and, and we witness things that many other people don't have the opportunity to or can't or will never because of, you know, situations or life as it was. So um, it is a big responsibility, uh, you know, to to, um, you know, uh, capture and um, project, you know, what we see in a, in a, in a proper form. Right. So it, it, it is difficult, um, you know, sometimes when, you know, as this book, it, it, there's a lot of uh, very hard pictures, pictures that depict violence and, and suffering, um, which we've obviously tried to balance out as well, because we, we don't want this book to just focus on the violence and suffering. But we wanted to, because that on its own can be very dehumanizing. So um, what we've tried to do is, is uh, arrange the book, and, and all the pictures have been carefully curated in a way that, you know, we hope um, actually humanizes, you know, the, the people involved in, in, in this issue of, of xenophobia. So, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the aesthetic, um, you know, it, it's what we see um, often when there they are, dramatic situations unfolding, you don't really have much time to, um, you know, compose a picture in an aesthetically pleasing way, but it's just there. You're just capturing the, the action. Some of the other pictures, however, in the book where we've got portraits and more documentary style images that capture people in their, you know, in, in real life as well. Those ones, yes, uh, we do have more time to actually arrange the picture in a, a, a more orderly fashion, you could say. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the strength of the question. book. I think that's the strength of the book. That in fact you grab those moments, but you also, as you say, balance it with those other photos, which give the person a real face. And also, it means that there's also an engagement between you and that person, allowing you, in fact, to take those photos and to show them in very traumatic circumstances. I'm going to quote you when you say, "Whenever fresh violence erupts, my stomach begins to knot with tension." And you start in in May. 2008, the series of xenophobic attacks accompanied by widespread looting and vandalism, which left 62 people dead. And it's quite tough to have to record from then onwards. You've been following that story, it seems. And so does your compatriot, Alon. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, the, this book, obviously, it wasn't planned. I mean, we, we were, you know, 2008 was uh, 13 years ago. And I think for both me and Ron, we were just really shocked to our core. Uh, it was the first time we'd you know, seen this sort of uh, brutal violence, and it was happening literally on our doorsteps. Um, so it made a huge impression on us uh, as, as um, you know, much younger photographers then. But then, um, you know, the, the violence subsided after more than a month, you know. Um, Tawun Beki finally deployed the, the military, and, and the violence was quelled. And then for a couple of years, we didn't see um, any similar outbreaks. So, you know, in the, in the back of my mind, I was quite relieved because, you know, it had been very traumatic for everyone. Um, but then in uh, around, I mean, there, there were one or two other sporadic kind of um, things here and there uh, and, and isolated attacks here and there. Um, and so it, it wasn't gone completely. But then in 2015, it sprung up again. And... You know, and, and that's when I started to really get this dread. Uh, I was just remembering the scenes that I'd seen in 2008, and I was just 
praying that we weren't going to go back there. As your fellow photojournalist Ra Silva comments, it's a privilege to see history unfold before our eyes, to be allowed into people's lives, but too often at the worst possible moments. But so I really want to congratulate you on presenting a book that makes us think so significantly about the other and the way, as I say, you've balanced this picture in a very meaningful way to tell the story and those contributions by other people also give it a perspective which allows us to actually contemplate and be conscious of actually a tradition of fertile journalism in this country which is often focused on the uncomfortable areas but allows us to think about it. I've been speaking to James Otway, one of the photojournalists. There were two of them. It's brother, and as I said, the, you need to see it as BR other, by Otway and Sky, and the book is published by Jakarta. Memphis in June, a shady veranda under a Sunday blue sky. Memphis in June, and cousin Amanda's making a rhubarb pie. I can hear the clock inside ticking and tucking. Everything's peaceful and dandy. I can see old granny cross the street, still a rocking, watching the neighbors go by. Memphis in June. With sweet oleander Blowing perfume in the air Up jumps the moon To make it that much grander It's paradise Brother, take my advice Nothing's half as nice as Memphis in June Take my advice Nothing's half as nice as Memphis In June Memphis in June was composed by Hoagie Carmichael and sung by Matt Monroe here on Fine Music Radio, where you're tuned into Book Choice, with me, your host, Paige Nick. As we head into the last segment of the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Leslie Beek, who has something a little different. You know how we're swamped with lists of what you should be reading? There are summer lists and winter lists and new book lists and prize-winning lists. Well, we bring you Leslie Beek's own list of very favorite books for children and adults. Every so often, recent study comes out telling us which children's books are the most popular. Google that and you will find knowledgeable and prestigious people doing this. The New York Times, The Times, the BBC, they clearly know what they're talking about. As an interesting exercise, I wrote my own list of what I thought would be on these lists. Try it. You won't be surprised. A.A. Mills in any shape or form. Ditto for Doctor's Use. Tolkien, usually The Hobbit. The Little Prince. Beatrix Potter, any of them. Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown. Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. 
The Very Hungry Caterpillar, representing an absolute industry of books written by Eric Carle, Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, Bridge to Terabita by Catherine Patterson, and anything with Harry in the title by... The lists differ, of course, but the surprising thing is that most of them, whatever the list, are quite old in terms of generations of children. Where are the modern books? The answer is, I think, that there are so many new books on the market, with a few thousand more coming out every month, that nobody, not even the BBC, can be said to have read them all. Print runs are small, and they tend not to be reprints. There is just a massive often truly excellent books to choose from. The other reason is to do with adults read to children. Well, they certainly should. And they read the books they love themselves. I clearly remember my own father dozing off after the fifth reading of a Pooh and Piglet story again. Some of these children's books are embedded in Western culture and are passed on from generation to generation. They are part of the life of lucky children. They also show true excellence. And excellence is my favorite word when assessing a book. It has to be very, very good if you expect to excite a child when you read it or give it as a gift. That is a double-edged sword given the number of books published annually worldwide. Take some time when standing bewildered in exclusive books. Sit down, browse. You will be astonished at the quality of some of the books on display. One that I bought there recently and which has not failed me when reading to children is Raj and the Best Dad Ever. Written and illustrated by Seb Brown, there's no message, no deep existential anxiety, just a day with, well, a tiger and his dad. The illustrations are delightful. The snappily dressed tigers pack their adventure bags and cloaks and set off for a day doing things that would have been a lot easier if dad wasn't such a scatty tiger. Oh, and I've remembered that those Harry books were written by J.K. Rowling. Raj and the Best Day Ever was written and illustrated by Seb Brown and published by Templar in 2018. The creator of The Very Hungry Caterpillar died last week, much loved by generations of children. Who would have guessed that cutting a hole in a board book would excite so much attention? He did. Rest in peace. As I'm sure you know, we couldn't do this show without the wonderful sponsorship and support we get from Exclusive Books. Joining us now is Tashata Majaya, who's the marketing manager at Exclusive Books, and she's going to do a roundup of some of the best books they're selling right now. Exclusive Book Recommends is a carefully selected monthly list of 25 titles, which includes new books, trending books, and books which cover topical issues. And there will be at least one book of interest from everyone on this list, whether you're a child, a teen, or an adult. These are some of the books which I would like to discuss from the June list. The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams is an enchanting tale that is a mixture of fact and fiction on the compilation of the Oxford English Dictionary. While it may sound academic, it really isn't. The main character is Esme, and as she has recently lost her mom, she spends a lot of time with her dad at his place of work. Her dad is part of the team responsible for the compilation of the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. She takes us on a journey of love and on the power of relationships. The importance of words and the evolution of feminism as women fought to find their place and voice in the world. She discovers that words describing women and their personal experiences are often left out or described negatively in the dictionary and she sets out to compile her own dictionary, the Dictionary of Lost Words. The second book I'd like to speak about is The Missing Sister by Lucinda Riley, which is the seventh book in the Seven Sisters series. It covers the lives of six girls originally from all corners of the world and adopted as babies by Passalt and brought up as sisters. When he dies, he leaves them clues to trace their heritage, should they so wish. The girls set off individually to search for their heritage in the hopes of discovering their true selves. In this latest book, The Missing Sister, the six sisters have all been on their journeys of self-discovery by seeking the truth about their past and where they're from. As the first anniversary of Parsol's death approaches, they go on a quest to find the missing seventh sister. They know there's a seventh sister because Parsol left a clue on how to find her, the one who belongs with them but never found her way to them. This series embraces sisterhood, loss, family, and the journey to self-awareness. From the non-fiction section of the EB Recommends list, one book that struck a chord is The Notes on Grief by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She is the critically acclaimed 
author of Purple Hibiscus, and she talks about her personal journey with grief. She speaks of losing her father to kidney failure in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic at a time when families were isolated from each other and how she coped with this grief. She also speaks about the guilt she felt that there is something more she could have done. It strikes a chord after the loss so many of us have experienced during this period and it helps us sort out our emotions and put feelings and words to these emotions. It helps us reminisce and find comfort and hope during this confusing period. The last book I'd like to talk about is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess by Dr. Caroline Leaf. We are all going through the most as we ride out the third wave. Our minds are a muddle of thoughts. We are anxious. We're depressed. We're thinking all sorts of negative thoughts. We don't know if our jobs are secure. We don't know what the economy holds. We are worried about our family. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. This book is what you need to get yourself out of that media fatigue, to give yourself a fresher grasp and a new lease on life, to ensure that you end 2021 on a positive note. And that's all we have time for this month, although I could surely chat books for hours. Thank you to Mawandi Lobi for making me sound good. And we'll see you for more book chat and book choice on the first Monday in July. As they say in the classics, the end. Book choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FMR.